0: How is everybody? Good. Good. <laughs> hey, if you've never been with us before, um, we've been working through the Gospel of John for quite a while now. Um, if you've never been through this book of the Bible, this is a book of the Bible specifically about Jesus' 33 years on earth, Him raising up a group of men who going to send out into the entire world and spread the message that He kind of started with them. Now where we're at in the story is this, if you weren't here last week. Um, we're in chapter 12, we're going to finish up chapter 12 this week, but where we're at in the story, even though we're only about halfway through the Gospel of John, is we're at the last week of Jesus' life, okay? So about six days before the crucifixion, right, five or six days before the crucifixion, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, which is the capital city, right, the big city. They estimate somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2.7 million people coming in and out of the city. I mean, this was a big festival, Right? The word that Jesus had raised a guy from the dead had spread out into the group. And so there's literally hundreds of thousands of people who were lining the street, waiting for Jesus to come in. Jesus rides into the city, right? They're laying down palm branches. They're yelling at him, save us, save us, save us as he's coming into the city. And there's this big deal going on, okay? But it's important to remember, we are in the last days of Jesus on earth before he's crucified, okay? So what we talked about last week was this. We talked about when Jesus is riding into town and all this attention is put on him, the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, this group called the Sanhedrin, this council, they hated Jesus because of all the popularity he was getting, okay? And so at the end of the part that we finished last week, they said to each other, they're mad, right? And they said, look, the whole world is going after him. And then we talked about how the reputation of Christians used to be, it's not so much anymore, but the reputation of Christians used to be the people who were going out and flipping the world upside down, making a huge global impact, right, on culture and society and and people's lives. And so we asked ourselves, how do we get back to that, right? How do we become the people that turn the world upside down? Now, this week, we're going to talk about something that a lot of people don't like to talk about in church. We're going to talk about the standard by which we're going to be judged. I don't know if you guys know this or not. There will come a time Jesus will come back, right? And all of us, not just us in the room, everyone who's ever lived will stand in front of him and will be judged based on what we've done with this life. All of us. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. That's God, right? And we're going to be judged by that. So if we know that we're going to be judged, it's good to know by what standard we're going to be judged by, Okay? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today as we finish up chapter 12 of John. Okay, so you should have a notes handout in front of you. Um, If you have a Bible, it's the fourth book of the New Testament. We're in the second half of the 12th chapter, starting in verse 20. And um, if you're new or if you've never read this before, it's okay. You'll be able to keep up. I'm going to read uh, chunks of it to you, and I'll do my best to break it down. And so it should be uh, relatively easy to follow along, okay? Everyone doing okay? Okay. Okay, good, good. Uh, if you're new to the church, I just want to tell you, we we're, we're, we try to be a very honest and upfront church. And today, guys, uh, we're just going to dig deep, okay? And, and, and I hope, I hope you come to church, not just this church, I hope people go to church in general uh, to be challenged and to be led and to let the Word of God kind of dissect us sometimes and get into the dark parts of our heart. That's what I hope to do today, okay? So uh, I'm a very imperfect person. Uh, his Word is perfect, but I'm not. And so, so be gracious with me and, and uh, bear with me today, but I'm gonna do my best to, to deliver the second half of this chapter, okay? Let me pray and we'll dive into this and we'll see what happens. God, I love you. God, I wanna tell you thank you, Lord. I wanna tell you thank you, Lord, for everyone that's in this room right now, God, that you would bring us together and that, Lord, that we have the freedom to break open your word like this and discuss it the way we do, Lord. Not everyone has this freedom, so we thank you. God, we pray that you open up our ears Open up our eyes, help us understand, help us, uh, help us absorb what you're saying, and to, to humble ourselves, God, so we can do what you want us to do. Lord, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for the nonprofits in our city. We pray that your kingdom and your will is, is, is enacted through us, God, and Lord, we just love you, and we praise you, God, and we thank you, Lord. If there's any non-believers in this room, God, I pray that something today, Lord, just sparks an interest in them. and. And that they'll continue to look for the truth, God. And if they do, Lord, they'll find you. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Be with us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, we're gonna get into it. Here we go. Now, again, keep in mind this huge festival is going on, and uh, Jesus just rode into town. He's Mr. Popular right now. Okay. Now, here's what happens. It says, "Now some Greeks were among those who went up to the uh, up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip. He's one of the disciples." who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it, And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But this is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said that it was an angel that had spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the scripture that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man will be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness does not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, Believe in the light so you may become sons of the light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Okay, so here's what's happening, right? Jesus' ministry was primarily focused on Jewish people. It's not because Jesus only loves the Jews, but that was his starting point, okay? He goes and Jesus focuses on the Jews. He trains up his disciples and his disciples will go out into the entire world and talk to the Greeks and the Romans and the rest of the inhabited world, okay? What we see here and the fact that a couple of Greeks came to this festival was we see a foreshadowing of the impact that Jesus was going to have globally, now, why did the Greeks go to Philip? The reason why the Greeks chose Philip, more than likely, is Philip is a Greek name. That doesn't mean that he was necessarily Greek, but he has a Greek name. So they targeted him, said, hey, can we talk to Jesus? And he's like, uh, let me go talk to Andrew. And then he and Andrew went and talked to Jesus. Now, when we get into the book of Acts later this year, which I'm very excited about, when we get into the book of Acts later this year, we will start to see the enormous impact that ministering, that the disciples did, ministering to the Greeks and the Romans in the Greco-Roman world. It was a huge impact. And what we see is this. We always talk about the chosen people of God. Well, God started with the Jews. That was his chosen people. But all that believe in Jesus Christ become grafted in. We become adopted into that family. And so we all get to be a part of God's chosen people when we accept Christ and when we follow him. All right? So... What's kind of humorous to me is Jesus didn't talk to the Greek guys, right? He just kind of ignored that part of the conversation. So Peter and Andrew, they, I'm sorry, not Peter and Andrew, Philip and Andrew come to Jesus. They say, hey, there's these Greek guys that want to talk to you. Jesus kind of seemingly ignores that conversation with the Greeks, and he starts talking about the cross. The reason why he did that is not because Jesus wants to be rude, but his time of doing ministry has come to a close. He's in the final stretch, and he's laser focused on the cross, the reason why he came. And so Jesus had predicted this the whole time. They knew that the cross was coming, the disciples. And he even says it to this crowd that we see in chapter 12, that he's going to be lifted up, which means he's going to be crucified. And so Jesus is Mr. Popular at this time of the week. At the end of the week, he's not going to be Mr. Popular. The people will have turned their back on him. And he also prophesied that, that he said a prophet's not going to be accepted even by his own people. And so again, these Greeks coming in we see a foreshadowing that Jesus is going to go beyond just his homeland and he's gonna go into the Greek world. He's gonna go into the Roman world and we start to see a little bit of that, okay? Now, Jesus is an excellent teacher and Jesus loves using botany in his lessons, right? Jesus loves talking about vineyards and farmers and the earth, probably because he made the earth, but you know, he likes talking about these things, right? And so Jesus uses this very simple story about a grain of wheat Really interesting how he ties these things together. And he says, if a grain of wheat falls to the ground, if it doesn't die, it's not good for anything. If it doesn't sacrifice itself, there can't be a large crop. But if a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies and breaks open, it produces more wheat, right? It produces life. And so Jesus is telling this lesson because he has come to willingly lay down his life. So many people would have life. So they would be saved. And here's the interesting thing though. That doesn't stop with Jesus. It's passed down to us. That doesn't mean that we all go get hung on crosses so people may live. That's not, but it means that we become sacrificial, that our life is not just for us, that if we refuse to sacrifice our life, we can actually be quite lonely. We're by ourselves. But if we are sacrificial, if we love people, if we give to people, if we make it not about us but other people, we produce a lot, right? We bring other people to heaven with us. People get to live. People are liberated. They're saved because of the work we do. That's the moral of the lesson that Jesus was teaching. I love what Peter Tasker said. He's an Anglican uh, theologian down in Australia. He said this, we must disown the imperious authority of our selfish ego. I love this part. And abandon ruthlessly Abandon ruthlessly a self-centered existence, lived in conformity to the standards of the world." Basically what he said is this, we have to give. It's not about taking, it's about producing. It's about giving to others, it's about being sacrificial. And this is, in a nutshell, the call of the Christian. It's very simple. And it's also very challenging because it's exactly the opposite of what the world tells us to do. But Jesus says, if you want to know what it means to live, you have to choose to give up your life. Okay? So if you want to have eternal life, you have to hate this life now. That doesn't mean that we walk around like with a frown on our face, hating everything. But it means that we don't fall in love so much with our time now that we forget that there's something better in the future. That if we serve God, God honors us I'm reading this book right now by a guy named Mark Batterson in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, or the longest title of a book ever, right? And so I'm reading this book right now, and one of the things he writes in this, which is something I've forgotten, is that God keeps track of every good thing you do. We often think God of the God that keeps track of everything bad we do, but he's keeping track of all the good deeds. And it says in the Bible that God will honor us for all the things we've done. So when we stand in front of him, If we've asked God to forgive us of our sins, he's not going to talk about that stuff. He's going to say, Corey, you did this one really good thing and no one saw it, but I saw it. Let me reward you for that. And he's going to reward us for every good deed that we have done. It's interesting. This whole losing our life and being sacrificial is the exact opposite of everything that culture tells you, right? We're a culture of instant gratification, of self-preservation, of consumption, Right, if I send you a text and you don't answer in 30 seconds, I'm going to unfriend you and unfollow you and hate you forever, right? We're that culture. Okay, okay, guys, let's go ahead and talk before we move any further. I've been throwing out some really good jokes the last couple of weeks. And you guys have not been laughing. And this bothers me. Last week, I made an anchorman joke, and it was dead silent in this place. I talked about my leather-bound books in my office. Nothing nothing, right? I had a couple of, of, of closet fans of mine come up to me like, I laughed. And I'm like, well, laugh louder, right? You know, like, I want to be affirmed in this. If I say something funny, guys, come on, bring it, right? Let's reciprocate this relationship. So, <laughs> so Jesus said this, right? So he's talking about this, this analogy of, of, of sacrifice. And then he says, my soul is troubled. Now, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, this is very profound. What we see here is Jesus isn't only God, Jesus is also man. And we see the human side of Jesus. Imagine this, imagine it's Monday and you knew that you were going to die on Friday. Not just die on Friday, but you were going to die the most painful, humiliating death imaginable. Imagine that pressure, imagine that stress, imagine that weight. That's what Jesus was going through. And so he looks up, And he says, should I ask God to deliver me of this day? No, this is why I came. And he said, Father, let your name be glorified. And after he says that, an audible voice from heaven, the third time this happens in the gospel of John, an audible voice of heaven says, I will glorify it. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And people heard this. The crowd heard this and they said, oh my gosh, was that thunder? Was that an angel? And Jesus' response to that was, no, it's the voice of God, and it wasn't for me, it was for you. And then Jesus kind of switches gears, and he starts talking about judgment. Jesus told them plainly that judgment was coming, but the cross that he was talking about is going to be the means for us to be delivered of judgment. He says, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth. Here's the thing. Jesus talked about the cross and went through the painstaking things that the cross entailed because that is the centerpiece. That is the focal point of all of human history, the cross. And what culture tries to do now with Jesus, if you watch enough documentaries, read enough books, if you're kind of savvy on how the world looks at Jesus... We either try to say he's a good man, and actually a a lot of gospels that were written later called the Gnostic Gospels, we get such fantastic movies as the Da Vinci Code from some of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Judas, say that Jesus never died on the cross, that he got married, he had children and was just a dude, right? Said some good things, but he was just a man. Other people say he died on the cross, but he never resurrected because he wasn't God. Here's the thing. If you take the death, burial, and resurrection away from Jesus, he's nothing more than a motivational speaker. He was nothing more than just a popular guy for, for, for three and a half years and nothing beyond that. He's not worth following, right? He would have been a pathological liar. He would have been insane. He willingly climbed up on a cross. That's crazy. But we know the death, burial, and resurrection is important, and that is the center point. That is the focal point of our faith. We also see through the cross, through the cross, that Jesus is not a universalist. When Jesus says that I will draw all men to me, that does not mean that everyone goes to heaven. What he means is that he's opened the door for whoever wants to see the Father goes through him. Jesus did not believe that there are multiple pathways to heaven. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. You cannot get more black and white than that. We try to paint this picture that Jesus walked around hugging everyone all the time and never like spat any truth or never talked about the hard stuff. And that's not true. That's not true. But he opened up the plan of salvation and it was his will that none should perish. But that again doesn't mean that everyone goes to heaven. That means that he opens up the door and says, everyone is invited. You just have to choose to walk through. And that was what the cross did. It created the pathway to the Father. It created the means for us to not be judged. But the Jewish people listening to him, they didn't get it. They weren't getting it. They're like, wait a second. If you're going to die, how are you going to be around to save us from this oppressive government? We just want you to save us from the Romans. And that was not why Jesus came. He didn't came to save them from the Romans. He came to save them from the oppression of sin the oppression of being distant from God. He had bigger fish to fry than the Roman Empire. And so that's why he came. But here's where we struggle, guys, if we're being honest, because we're trying to be honest. What we do is we like to put a plan together and then hope that God conforms his will to our plan. Okay, we're just going to get personal here for a second. So in the Old Testament... There was a civil war going on. There was a southern hemisphere called Judah and then a northern one called Israel, right? And they were at war with each other. Well, one time, the king of the south on his old Motorola called the guy from the north, the king of the north. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're there. See, there it was. So the king <laughs> almost spit my uh, mint out. So the king of the south calls the king of the north and he says, "Hey, I got a plan." we have this mutual enemy over here to the east. I'm gonna get my army together, you get your army together, we'll sign a contract and then we'll go attack this, these enemies on the east. They say, okay, awesome. They sign the contracts, they get the armies together, they're on their way to march to the king of the east to overthrow them and they say, oh, oh, wait a second. We should pray that God is okay with this, right? We've already signed the contracts, we're on our way to do it, we need to make sure that God's cool with this. So they pray, God, please bless this. And do you know what happens? They get their butts handed to them. They get just overtaken. They lose the battle. They come back home and they go, what went wrong? You know what went wrong? They wanted God to conform to their plans instead of them asking God what they should do and conforming to his plan. We do the same thing. We choose our spouse, where we're gonna live, what kind of job we work, how we spend our money. These big decisions in life, we already make those decisions. And then we say, hey Corey, would you pray about this? Or God, you know, can I do this? And you've already made up your mind. And then we wonder why our plan fails. Because we haven't checked first, what is the will of God for our life? God, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to marry? What kind of job do you want me to work? What are your dreams for me? And if we would just get in his channel, we're always going to succeed because we're in the will of God. The reason why we fall flat is because we're not in his will. So we need him. We need to conform to his will. We don't need to ask him to conform to ours, okay? And so Jesus warned his followers. He said, look, guys, I'm gonna be gone soon. And this is the best analogy I can think of of what we're called to do. When Jesus was leaving, He gave us the Holy Spirit, right? We call that, you know, talk about the the tongues of fire that happens in Acts chapter 2. And what we're called to do as followers of Jesus is to take our torch, light it from his flame, right? And we are called to go out into the dark places. Now, if we're going to carry the light, we must first believe in the light. And when John wrote that, he wrote it in the present tense. Look at that. That command is still going right now. The master calls his servants to believe. Every day, we must believe. We must have faith in him and what he can do. And so like a good parent, Jesus invites his followers, his servants, to step up and to go out and lead. He's going to hand you the torch. It's his flame. It's his fire. It's his light. But we are commissioned to go out into the world and light up the dark places. Okay? Next part. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. But this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and be converted, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke about Him. Nevertheless, many did believe, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, so they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men... More than the praise of God. So, about 700 years before Jesus was born, 700 years, there was a prophet named Isaiah that wrote a lot of very, very profound prophecies. Wrote a very meaty book of the Old Testament. One of the prophecies that he talked about is he said that there would come a time when the Messiah came, when people would either choose not to believe him, they could not believe him or they would believe him, but they wouldn't openly confess it. They wouldn't tell anybody about it. Now, the one that's the most complicated of those three is the middle one. The fact that there are times when God closes people's understanding. He shuts their eyes, shuts their ears, and does not allow them to believe in him. Now, when I say that, People, that can be a stumbling block. Wait a second, God must be heartless and quite cold-blooded to make some, why would he create some people just to damn some people? That doesn't make sense. And now when we think that way, it's because we haven't properly studied the word of God. If you go back to the book of Exodus, right? The Prince of Egypt, right? If you've seen the movie. If you go back to the book of Exodus, when you, when you see how Pharaoh and Moses, their interactions went, look at the grace and mercy God was willing to show Pharaoh. 10 different times. He did these just unbelievable things, right? To try to get Pharaoh's attention. And you guys know the story. What did Pharaoh do? No, no, no. And eventually when he did let the children of God go, he went after him to kill him, right? Changed his mind. And so it says, when you read the story of the Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, wait a second. With proper study, we see that God gave him ample opportunities. God gives everyone ample opportunities. But if people continually refuse the invitation of God, this may be one of the scariest passages in the entire Bible. What happens is, if we continually say God, say to God, no, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, there comes a time in some people's lives where it says that God gives them over to a worthless mind where basically he says, okay, if you don't want me, I'll step out of the picture. I will remove myself. Guys, that is a terrifying place for someone to be. That is very scary, right? And so what we see is this, and when we study the Bible, we have to depend on this and understand this to the best of our abilities, is that God is sovereign. God knows all and he sees all, but God never pits his sovereignty against man's responsibility. What that means is this. Just because God knows where all of us are going to end up one day, right? He has foreknowledge of everything that's going to happen in our lives, where our eternity, he knows everything. He is outside of our time. God knows everything. Just because he knows everything doesn't mean that we're not responsible for ourselves. Some people take God's sovereignty as an excuse to do nothing, And that is not what God has called us to do. The scripture is clear over and over and over again that we are responsible for our relationship with him. When we get to heaven one day or when we stand in front of the throne of judgment, you can't say, you know, man, my pastor sucked. That's why we never had a relationship with you, God. It's not gonna work. You can't blame it on your parents. You can't blame it on your socioeconomic status. It's not going to work. Every single person is responsible to work out their salvation with fear and trembling that we're responsible. Guys, this is the problem with our culture right now. We blame shift everything on everyone else, and we refuse to step up and say, maybe my life looks the way it does because of me. Maybe maybe my relationship with God, the reason it's terrible, is because I haven't invested in it. So we must understand that God's sovereign, but we must also understand that we are responsible. Here's another thing. We must also accept that there are strange works, as Isaiah calls them, about God that we just, we're not going to get. We're not going to get until we get to heaven, right? I can't explain to you what the Trinity's like. Well, it's like an egg, Corey. No, God is not like an egg. It's much more complicated than that, right? And there are some things we just don't understand, and that's okay. We're going to understand those things one day when we're in his presence, all right? So this part ends with something, though, that hurts. It hurts because we've all done it. John writes this. Many people did believe in Jesus, even among the Jewish leaders, but they did not confess him because they were afraid that they wouldn't be popular anymore. It says, for they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. That hurts because we've all been there, right? Let's just be honest. You guys ever been in that place where you're at the grocery store, or you're at work, or maybe it's even in church, right, or wherever the case may be, and you feel so strongly that God is telling you to go talk to someone. (laughs) And it may not even be anything like super spiritual, right? But like, hey, you know, go ask that person how their day's going. And what we do, I won't say we, I'll just blame it on me. What I do is I'm like, oh, God, is that really you? They're going to think I'm a weirdo, you know, like, I don't want to go over there, you know? And so we talk ourselves out of it because we're worried about what that person's going to think about us. And I see God in my head looking down saying, Corey, who do you care? Whose opinion do you care more about? That person you don't know? Or me, your creator? Go talk to that person. And so over the years, I've gotten better about it. But guys, I'll be honest with you. There's sometimes when I'm just afraid of what people are going to think of me if we're being honest. But we need to step back from that. And here's something we need to know about our faith. A lot of people are willing to follow Jesus, they're willing to be a Christian, as long as it's not too difficult, as long as it's not too uncomfortable. But if you're in here and you're not a believer, I'm telling you, we're going to be honest today, if you're in here and you're not a believer, I'm not going to lie to you and say that being a Christian is easy. In fact, if you're in here and you are a Christian, I'm not going to lie to you either, it's not going to get more easy in the future. It's going to get more difficult if the Bible's correct, which I believe it is. It's going to get more difficult as time goes on. I don't know if you know this, in the book of Revelation, it says one day we're gonna be exiled to the wilderness. Now, exactly what that means, I don't know, but I know that it's not as cool as hanging out in the city with everyone else, right? So eventually, we're gonna get treated differently. And so I ask myself the question, you guys, you probably need to ask yourself this question too. Do we follow Jesus until it costs us something socially? I'm not trying to be mean, but man, if it rocks your faith because someone unfriended you on Facebook... What are we going to do in our country right now? What are we going to do if we have to face real persecution? real Which we've never faced in, in the United States. We have not faced it. Guys, because someone you know, boycotts Hobby Lobby, that is not persecution. Because someone stands out front of Chick-fil-A and holds up, that is not persecution, guys. Persecution is fear of your life. Persecution is them arresting you if you have a Bible, like they do in communist China, like they do in North Korea, like they do in certain places in Russia. That's Persecution. And I ask ourselves, how will the Christian faith in North America respond when the heat is really turned up on us? And quite honestly, guys, I don't think it's going to be that good right now. We've got some soul searching to do. We've got some conditioning with our spirit that we need to do, okay? Then Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own, But the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak." Look at this next sentence. "...I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me." Now Jesus essentially gives like a mini-resume right here. It's a small resume, but quite significant, right? Jesus reemphasizes that he's God, he's the light of the world, and he's the savior of mankind. And to all the millions of people that had come to the Passover feast to see God move, this is odd, all the people who came to see God move, they didn't realize that God was walking around, that he was right there in front of them. If they wanted to see God the Father, all they had to do was look at the Son. He was the same thing. And so Jesus came and presented the opportunity for people to come out of the darkness and into the light. Now listen, let me say that one more time. Jesus gives us the opportunity to come out of the darkness into the light. Now, you would think that everyone would want to do that, right? We all want to see clearly. We all want to have illumination around us. We want clarity, right? But the reason why so many people choose to stay in the darkness is because it's very uncomfortable to get into the light. What I mean is this. If you struggle with a porn addiction, it's very uncomfortable to admit that to someone and to take the steps to change it, right? I struggle with porn, right? And so when we say that, we're worried about what people think of us. We're worried about how uncomfortable it is. We're gonna to have to put things on our phone and on our computer and our wife's gonna to have to know or our husband's gonna, we're gonna to have to deal with this and that's a very uncomfortable time. But what we fail to realize is God shines the light on our issues, the light on our sin, the light on our insecurities because if we will get through that uncomfortable time, our life will be better, that our marriage might be saved, that our relationships might be saved. That our souls will be saved if we come into the light. But people don't want to take that step. And some people even hate the light because the light exposes to God and to everyone else that we're not maybe all that we say we are. That maybe we are broken. Maybe we are confused. Maybe we are lost. Maybe we are in trouble. And we don't want to admit that. To take it even a step further, There are some people that don't wanna come out of the darkness because they capitalize on people being in the darkness. What do you mean by that? Let's stay on pornography. A $12 billion a year industry just in the United States. Let me get real personal. There's a woman who wrote a book called 50 Shades of Grey. Do you know how many millions of dollars she's made on putting, you can call it what you want. I know it's not visual, but it's mental, it's pornography, right? There's a lot of women who say, oh, it's great for my marriage. Really? Fantasizing about another man, sadomasochistic torture, and all of this infidelity. That's good for you? That's good for you. You know how many copies that book sold just on ebook? 125 million copies just on Kindle. And we're thinking that we don't have a problem? We don't think there's darkness in our society? Oh, porn's just a man problem. Is it? So we have this issue right now, and there's people that capitalize on the fact that that is jeopardizing your marriage, that that is jeopardizing how you view people, that is jeopardizing what you think of sex and relationship and family, and people are making a fortune off of that. I had a friend that started a church in Nashville a long time ago. It didn't didn't succeed probably because it was way ahead of its time, but he started this little church of about 30 people right between two strip joints in downtown Nashville, and so he started this little church and their primary function was they built these care packages, right? These big baskets, beautiful baskets. And then women in the church would take these care packages into the strippers. They'd go backstage and deliver them. They'd have perfume in them and like these really expensive chocolates and lotions and just all this stuff just that make women feel beautiful, right? And feel like they're worth something. And so they'd put this little note in there and they just say, you are wonderfully made. We love you. If you ever need anything, let us know. The phone number for the little church. Now that was all fine and good at first, Right? You know, the owners of the strip clubs were like, yeah, you know, we want our strippers taken care of because they're, they're making money off these women who come from broken homes and are exploited like some kind of commodity and they're making money off that. And so it was all fine and good until the strippers started quitting and they started going to church and they started getting their lives right and they started to realize, wow, we are, the light was exposed. It exposed things and they said, wow, this we are broken, we need help. And it was all fine and good until they started quitting their jobs, right? And then my buddy Michael started getting death threats. People started saying they were going to kill him. People are saying they're going to burn down his little church right there between those two strip joints. There are some people that are so evil that they're capitalizing off the fact that you are in the darkness. So did Jesus come to judge us? Not yet. Jesus came to this earth not to judge, but to open up a pathway for us to avoid judgment. Now, at the end of time as we know it, Jesus calls it the last day. On the last day, Jesus will come and he will assume the role of judge. But here's the thing, we shouldn't be afraid of that. We've been given the expectations of God. We've been given the exit strategy of God. We've been given the escape plan. We don't have to be judged negatively by Jesus Christ because we have the the parameters of how we're going to be judged clearly defined to us. So what is that, right? I'm sure you want to know. What is the standard that we're going to be judged by? The focus of judgment will be the word of God. Oh no, Corey's telling us we have to read the Bible again. God's words through Jesus, through the prophets, through the apostles of the New Testament, form the final authority of how we are to be obedient to God. How will we be judged at the end? Jesus says it. Look at his words. He says, I'm not going to be your judge. My word will be your judge. By what I'm saying to you right now, God will ultimately judge people by how they have received and how they have responded to what the Bible says. Where is our faith anchored? Right in the word of God. This is extremely important. Guys, it's like if we were all taking a test next week and I said, here's the answers. Everyone get your copy of the answers. Study them as much as you want. We'll take the test on Friday. And it's like, we got the answers, but we said, eh, I'm too busy for that, right? I'm not gonna look at the answer sheet. And so then when we finally approach our judge, we have no excuse for why we don't know the answers. He gave us the answers. Paul says this, where does our faith come from? Where does belief come from? Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of God, the message about Christ. That's where it comes from. This is the standard by which God is going to hold us to. So here's where we have to be very, very honest. Whether you knew this before today or not, you know it right now and you can fact check me. Matthew 16, 27. Jesus will come back and he will judge every single person that's ever lived based on their deeds. Listen, not on who you say you are, but how you've acted. I'm an apple tree. If all you produce is oranges, you're not an apple tree. Jesus said, a tree will be known by its fruit. We can say we're Christians all day long. James said, show me. Show me you're a Christian. Act like it. Talk like it. Sacrifice like it. Love like it. So we will be judged by our deeds. So if the Bible says we're going to be judged by our deeds, I would like to know what constitutes a good deed. I was like, okay, what does that look like? Let me get into the Word of God because this book shows me how I should act, how I should live, by what standard I'm going to be judged. So I I need to know this Word. I need to pick it up and read the Word of God. Here's the curveball, though. We're judged by our actions, but we're not saved necessarily by our works, We're not saved by the amount of good things we do. What does that mean? That even if we do all the good things you can imagine, if we compare it next to Jesus, it still doesn't look so good. So we need to be accepted by Jesus. The only way we can be accepted by Jesus is to have Jesus' spirit in us. We need his grace. We need his mercy. So even if we've done all the good things you can imagine, it still doesn't stack up to Jesus's expectations. So we have to have his spirit inside of us. The only way to get into heaven is to already have a chunk of heaven in us. It's to have his spirit in us. That's how we're accepted, that we're saved by grace through faith. So what is our mission now? Guys, I don't mean this to be mean. We live in a culture right now, I'm even talking about Christian culture, we have got to find some humility. We have got to realize that we are not gods. Well, Corey, we don't say we're gods. No, but we just act like it. We just act like we're in charge. We just act like we know everything. We're such an arrogant people. You know what God says about arrogant people? It says in the Bible that He resists them, He pushes away from them. If you hang out with someone that's just prideful, I don't even care if they're a pastor or a Christian musician or whatever they are, if you're hanging around with prideful people, you should probably take a step back. God resists pride. But if we will humble ourselves, we become heirs to the throne. If we lose our life, if we become humble, if we lay ourselves down for him, we're adopted as children of God. Go back and read Revelation chapter 4 tonight, one of my favorite chapters of the entire Bible. It talks about the throne room of God, right? It's the one where the angels are flying around. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. Beautiful depiction and when you see the throne room of God, it says in the Bible that we will become heirs to the throne of God. That doesn't ever mean that we're as good as God, but imagine having this relationship with him to where we get into heaven and we see the great throne of God. God's like, hey, you want to sit here for a second? That kind of relationship, this father-son, this loving relationship, that if we accept him, if we humble ourselves, we become children of God, princes and princesses of the king. That's what we become. And now though, we are called by our father to carry out his flame, to carry out his light to the entire world. Remember, a good parent allows their children to step up. They raise them correctly, but there comes a time where they say, okay, now it's your turn. It's my flame, but take it out into the world. Light up the world around me. But here's the thing. If we're ever going to step up, we need to first grow up. My discipleship class, I have a a small group that I do every Wednesday, and we just went through the five stages of Christians, Uh, spiritually dead, to being spiritually infant, to being a spiritual child, to being a spiritual young adult, to being a spiritual parent. You know where most Christians are? I'm not trying to be mean, guys. We're spiritual children. We haven't grown up. We're self-centered. It's about us. It's about us consuming. It's about my comforts. It's about what I get out of all this, and we haven't grown up to a young adult yet. We're not even in the adolescent stage yet of our Christianity. But if we're going to go out and make the impact that Christ wants us to do, if we're going to go out and and, and follow the mission of Christ, we've got to step up a little bit. We've got to mature. Guys, And I'm going to tell you three ways that we need to do this. Very, 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 very simple. But we don't hear it that often. Here's the first one. If we're going to grow up, we have to live a repentant life. That doesn't mean that you repent one time. That whole one and done thing, I don't believe in that. We have to live a life where we're constantly dependent on him. God, I need to be realigned every single day. Every single day. God, forgive me that I'm not everything I need to be. Put me on the right course, right? Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for looking at porn. Repentance is taking the steps to stop looking at porn. Repentance is not feeling sorry for cheating on your spouse. Repentance is taking the steps to stop cheating on your spouse to stop being greedy, to stop being a liar, to stop being materialistic, whatever the sin may be. It's not just feeling bad about it, it's changing. It's it's, it's an about face. It's a different direction. And we have to live a lifestyle of constantly being realigned by God, constantly being put in the right direction by Him. We also need His Word. We need His Word. We need to pick that thing up We need to read it. If we're gonna be judged by it, we should know it. You don't have to have every single word memorized. Guys, there's people that have dedicated their entire lives to that book and they're just scratching the surface, but you need to be reading it. You need to know what the 10 commandments are. You need to read the book of Romans and and see and, and learn about the grace of God. You need to read the book of James and see the responsibility that God has placed on us. We need to get into the word of God. Even if it's just a little bit a day, Why do we need to get into it? Because it contains the wisdom we need to make it through this life and it contains the instruction we need to get to the next life. We have to be dependent on the word of God. Do we worship the word of God, right? Do I worship this leather bound book with all the papers? on? No, I don't worship that, but I worship the God whose mind came up with these words. We need this. You need to read the word of God. And here's the last thing. If we're going to grow up, we have to constantly be refilled by His Spirit. I don't know where Christianity got off thinking, "Well, man, I said a prayer when I was 13. That's great. Say a prayer every day. Every day. We must constantly be refilled with the Holy Spirit. Your prayer that converted you into the faith that saved your soul, that's just the beginning. That's not the final destination. When you get married, you don't put on the ring and be like, okay, see you when one of us dies, right? That's not the end of the relationship. That's the beginning. It's the constantly talking. It's the constantly being filled up, being poured into that helps our relationship stay strong. In this world, guys, I don't know if you've noticed or not. This world is brutal. It's brutal. There's one thing. There's many things that God promised us, but there's one thing that Jesus points out that he promised us about this life. You know what he says? In this life, there will be suffering. Jesus said it. Well, if I'm a Christian, I'm not going to go through that. No, 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 no. In this life, Jesus said, there will be suffering. But take heart. I've overcome this world. So we have to be constantly filled up with his spirit to engage the world around us, to be the dads and the moms and the families that we need to be. We must be constantly filled up. The reason why families fall apart is because we're not filled up with the Holy Spirit of God. We have nothing to give our spouse. We have nothing to give our children. We have nothing to give our governments and our school systems and our neighborhoods because we're not full. We thought that one prayer 15 years ago did it and that's not it. That We must be constantly connected to the source. When I first got saved and I started working for the church that, that I got saved in, my office connected to my pastors and, and oftentimes I'd just I'd cut through the bathroom. There's this bathroom that connected. And I'd go in there and I'd just you know, unload on him whatever I needed to get off my chest. And I remember there was this one summer where it was just a, a, a brutal summer. I had a big youth group, um, not as big as Drake's, but we've had maybe 100 kids. And so all the time these kids would come in Their arms shredded from how they'd cut themselves or that they were suicidal or their parents were getting a divorce. And I'd have the kid's parents come in. And I remember one time a man came in and said that he was having an affair on his wife with another man and all this stuff. And just people would tell me these things all the time. And I felt so honored that they trusted me. But over time, the brutality of the world would catch up with me. And I remember one time I went into my pastor's office and I just just broke out just crying, I mean, just weeping about the brutality and the ugliness of the world. And my pastor sat back in his chair and he said, Corey, don't think that any of us get out of this life unscathed. All of you will be hurt. All of you will suffer. All of you will lose people. All of you will be stabbed in the back. And let me tell you this, When God does fill us with his Holy Spirit, there's a sensitivity that even opens up more. It wasn't until I got saved that I realized how destructive the earth was, how how evil people could be. It wasn't until I got saved and the Holy Spirit opened up my eyes that I saw how horrible pornography was, that I saw how horrible it was that people treated each other and how bad it was that families were breaking apart. So not only do I need the Holy Spirit to help me with the brutality that comes just against me, But I need the Holy Spirit to keep filling me up because when my eyes are opened, we understand the obligation and the responsibility that God has put on us to go into those dark places. It's not that we remain isolated from the world, but we must be insulated by the Holy Spirit to go into the world. And if we're not properly insulated by the Holy Spirit when we go out into the darkness, the darkness will overcome us. So let me encourage you. Not just here because it's Sunday, right? It would be foolish of you to leave this room until you felt properly filled up by the Holy Spirit of God. And I'll tell you what, it would be foolish for you to leave your house tomorrow on your way to work until you felt properly filled up by the Holy Spirit of God. It would be foolish for you to step on MTSU's campus if you're a Christian unless you've been properly filled up with the Holy Spirit of God because until we are insulated by His Spirit, It's like going into a war with no weapons. God has given us His Spirit to empower us, to protect us, to counsel us, to give us wisdom, to give us hope, to give us the light that we need to go and engage whatever is around us. Every day, every day, every day. When we take communion today, all these, these tables around us, Guys, lunch can wait a minute. I know that the traffic may be a little bit more dense if we all just hung out in here and prayed for a couple of minutes. But I just want to encourage you. Get your communion. If you need to get on your knees, if you need to lay down on your face, if you need to get prayer at the front, whatever you need to do, I implore you, do not leave this place until you have asked God to forgive you of your sins and you've asked him to fill you up with the Spirit because it is tough out there. And for the sake of the people that depend on you and for the sake of your own soul, you need to be filled up. And if you're in here and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, if you were to be honest, I bet you're tired and I bet you're confused and I bet this life has beat you up. And all I ask from you, if you're not a believer in here, is just be open-minded. Just be open-minded and keep digging for the truth. And if you keep digging for the truth, Jesus is gonna show up in your life. There'll be people up here at the front to get prayed for if you need prayer for anything. When you take the communion, think about that. God didn't just, Jesus didn't come just to die and resurrect. He came to pour out his spirit so you and I can be filled with the spirit of God. That's what that represents too. Remember that. And don't leave here empty. Don't leave here empty. Would you bow your heads with me, please? With your heads bowed and your eyes are closed, those of you who feel beat up and worn out, I want to tell you that there's hope. For those of you who are confused, for those of you who are lonely, for those of you who feel empty and depleted, God can re-energize you. God can fill you up. God can give you peace. God can give you fulfillment and contentment and joy. He can do that. But we've got to empty ourselves of our sin and ask God to forgive us. We've got to empty ourselves of our sin and then we've got to ask to be filled up with his spirit. Not just today. Every day. Every day. And if we do that, we'll make it. We'll make it not just through this life, but we'll make it into eternity where there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more brokenness or hurt. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. Lord, as we take communion today and we remember what your son did for us on the cross, Lord, let us also remember not just his death, burial, and resurrection, but Lord, let us remember that you have opened up the channel for us to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, for all the people in here who are hurting, God, I pray that you start to heal them. For the people in here who are lonely, God, I pray, Lord, that you start to give them comfort. For the people in here who've, who've made mistakes and they're riddled with guilt and shame, I pray that you forgive their sins, God, and that you relieve them of that guilt and that shame. God, give us strength. Help us, Lord. Lead us, God, and guide us, Jesus. We need to be dependent on you all the time, Lord. We love you and we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. Communion or prayer, uh, make yourself at home, please.